Welcome to Unity Now, the podcast where we discuss all things Unity 2020 with one goal in mind, to increase awareness and grow the groundswell. To our new listeners and viewers, here's a quick introduction to Unity 2020. Unity 2020 is a plan to take back American politics in the name of the people. Unity was first announced by Brett Weinstein on the Joe Rogan Experience in mid-June. From there, the movement was born, and since then, tens of thousands of volunteers have signed up, organized, and have begun to create a groundswell of support. From an original primary-style vote that selected six nominees, the Unity 2020 movement has drafted Tulsi Gabbard and Dan Crenshaw to be our candidates. For more information after this episode, please check out articlesofunity.org. And my name is Eric White, and I'm very honored today to be joining our rotation of patriotic hosts. That includes Toby Davis and Zach Rhodes. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Cody Hill. Cody is a Unity 2020 volunteer and supporter who recently left his job at Facebook due to ethical concerns. So thanks for joining me, Cody. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah, me too, man. I've been looking forward to this. Um, in our conversation today, we're going to be discussing the problems that social media like Facebook has presented to our democracy and how a movement like Unity can help bring our country back together. So let's just get started, man. You know, this is a particularly timely conversation with the Social Dilemma documentary having hit Netflix and kind of exposed something that a lot of people maybe expected or suspected um, about what social media was doing to us. Um, and I'm just really stoked to have you on and get in get in the weeds on this. Yeah, I, I just finished the documentary last night. So um, hopefully I'll have some interesting things to say about it. <laughs> nice. Sure you do, man. Um, so to just get us started here, can you uh, describe what your role at Facebook was? So I was a product operations lead at Facebook. And so I worked on um, two different product teams and essentially worked with um, really closely with our software engineers to help uh, make improvements, build fixes into the product and essentially help all the processes run in an efficient way. A lot of that had to do with understanding forms of signal. So signal is basically all the different ways that tech companies like Facebook um, have to understand what's going on. And you know, there's thousands of potential forms of signal. And so really understanding which forms are the most relevant to the product that I was working on, um, which weren't, and then understanding how to use those to better um, improve the, the performance of the, of the product. So when you say signal, that's, uh, for example, uh, determining which messages might be political or misinformation. Is that, is that a signal? Yeah, that would be one form. It could be as simple as um, how are people using it? What pages are they going to? How are they friending? Um, things like app reviews from the app store, things like listening on other uh, social platforms, kind of social listening, understanding what people are saying about Facebook. So each kind of part of Facebook is basically broken down into different product teams and they all kind of value different forms of signal because they um, all kind of have different goals or metrics that they track to. And um, yeah, so we had our own kind of metrics we went after. And so we, you kind of are able to pick and choose from different forms of signal to better understand uh, how to improve the product. Right. So essentially it's uh, determining how users are using the platform to put it simply. Yeah. 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 
And there's lots of different ways to do that, which is the proliferation of big data and the amounts of things that can be measured and of thus the amount of signal and the amount of calculations that can be done that are potentially relevant to performance on the product and you know how they kind of defined performance uh, is kind of differs by what part of the product you're working on. So I didn't actually work on the, I didn't work on like the main Facebook app per se. I was in a organization that focused on growth and in international markets, which are really where all the growth in Facebook is coming from, Asia, Africa, Latin America, and really helping to kind of connect other parts of the world for the first time, um, which is really driving Facebook's growth. Okay. And yeah, I definitely want to get into um, some of that international stuff because obviously, you know, that's a, a big issue. And it was something presented in the social dilemma in terms of how not just in America, but in countries around the world, um, Facebook is being used to spread misinformation to basically be a propaganda machine, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a really, inter- I like to think of Facebook in kind of two different worlds, kind of the more developed world that that we live in kind of the bubble over here and all the improvements that are being made are essentially trying to get you to spend more time or find facebook or instagram or or whatever app like more useful so you're spending more time on it you're more engaged with it we can go into the business side of that and the implications for that but then the second piece is really the undeveloped world and there is a um a actually like a very good story that can be told and, and and is told about um, connecting unconnected populations for the first time. So um, if you think of Facebook, their market is the world. There's 8 billion people in the world, and it's actually almost 50-50 that 4 billion people do not use the internet. So if you think of Facebook trying to address that market, um, really the number one thing that they can do is is essentially connect people to the internet for the first time. Because one of the first things that they'll do is create a Facebook account just with the usefulness of the internet and what they'll find. Um, so essentially getting internet to people is the kind of quickest way that any internet company can grow, especially Facebook or Google. So there's lots of different um, kind of ways to do that. And a lot of it has to do with working with telco companies, telecom companies and building out um programs that make it either more affordable or easier to get online for the first time. But if you, if you think about it from a, a social perspective, we are all very used to the internet, its uses, what it does, kind of we have a general sense of things that are more true or less true, even though we can get into that because most things, you know, there's a big element of fake news to it. But put yourself in the shoes of someone who has never used the internet before, who has never touched a screen before, who the only world that they know is the um, kind of city, let's say rural Bangladesh, and you live in a small town and there are, um, you know, there are um, livestock and animals that you grew up with and you know most of the people around you. Um, So spreading internet to them you can kind of see it two different ways. Like it's a great thing. Like everyone should be able to get online and understand Um, Like what are their local government laws, Um, kind of basic information that people don't even know, like they should be able to talk to family members, maybe on the other side of the country, they've never spoken to. So that's a really great thing. So I think the incremental benefits of basically increasing internet penetration to um, emerging markets are, are much greater than the incremental benefits of getting you of like building cool new sticky tools in the developed world that we live in. 
But then the other piece for the underdeveloped world is, so what are the negative consequences of suddenly giving someone access to all this information who had zero ramp up period and doesn't really understand the implications of what is true, what isn't true. There's always going to be bad actors in every society and kind of lower information areas are unfortunately easier to manipulate and easier to take advantage of platforms like like Facebook. Um, so internally, uh, amongst your team or your coworkers, uh, what sort of level of recognition um, about these issues was there in daily discussions? Was this top of mind about how vulnerable these uh, emerging markets are to misinformation? Is this something that is uh, discussed regularly? Yeah, so it is It is discussed. Um, I am going to do my best not to say anything that would get yeah. me in trouble, which... Oh, we'll be fine. Don't want to make any trouble for you. Yeah, like it, it, there is a general thought, but at the end of the day, people are doing their job and every team is tied to metrics and that people are very laser focused at Facebook on their metrics. And if the metric that if you're on a growth team and the metric that you are incentivized to get to is adding new users. And honestly, the easiest way to get new users is in emerging markets, just with the percentage of people that don't have it, then... In a way, it kind of becomes more about trying to avoid negative news stories than really trying to mitigate actual social cost in those areas. Like, for example, they mentioned Myanmar in the in the Netflix documentary, and Myanmar was a country that um, that I you know that it's a big country. It has a lot of potential for growth, and so a lot of it is about trying to like mitigate negative news stories, but also find a way to most effectively get new people connected there and, and grow new accounts there. So people do know it, but they're not actively using that to, I don't know, I'm sure some people are, um, but it's not something that happens in every single conversation. Now, to be fair, there are teams that are being built out that we do have that work to try and curb a lot of social issues in emerging markets. Like for example, um, a great thing that they do in India, they have something called locked profile, where um, it, it kind of curbs on harassment, where women for having their profile picture that can be clicked on, so there was larger incidences of them being harassed. So they built a tool out to kind of not allow people to kind of click into those photos and, and harass women that they don't know, you know, which is great. So there is there is a balance of trying to solve some problems. And, and in one sense, it's almost impossible to solve for every problem ahead of time because you don't always know what's going to happen. So it's a very it's a very tough problem that they have to deal with. But I think in general, most of the negative social externalities that happen through these big problems are not as high priority as um, other metrics. Yeah, that was um, there. Recently, a uh, memo came out by a former Facebook employee. I'm not sure if you saw that. I think her name was Sophie Zhang. Um, and she was a data scientist. And she, in her memo, mentioned that a lot of the focus on uh, the issues facing Facebook uh, were put onto public relations issues as opposed to issues uh, that were social crises or electoral crises. Uh, is that your experience as well? Yeah, I haven't thought much about it, but that kind of seems what it would be it would be you know mitigating yeah mitigating public relations issues is 
in, in one sense, it's like almost the only thing that they can do. Um, but no, I mean, there are definitely ways to build better kind of proactively trying to mitigate negative social externalities. But um, I could see them being categorized as yeah, public relations issues. That's definitely more important. Yeah. I mean, as a publicly traded company, yeah. you know, your first concern is obviously going to be, you know, your shareholders. Yeah. Right. And the bottom line. So that for sure. How long did you work at Facebook? So I was there for two years and a little over two years. So two years and um, I just quit like a week and a half ago. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, about two years and two months. Uh, So that puts you there after the 2016 election when kind of the focus was turned up after the 2016 election. Yeah. And it's interesting. They, I was there for longer than over 50% of the employees. So if you just think about the churn of employees and the growth of new employees, me being there for two years, I was already more tenured than about half the employees there. They have a little tracker that kind of says that just an interesting stat. What, what accounts for that? Do you have any idea? Uh, um, well, it's two factors. One is just the overall growth of employees. Um, I think there's around 50,000 now or so. Uh, I think when I started, it was maybe in the mid 30s. And then, of course, like employee churn and um, people starting after you. Okay. So, um, and just the rapid growth. Like, if you look at the margins that Facebook has and the amount that they're hiring because of the market opportunity, you know, and especially like through COVID, they're one of the companies that grew the most. And yeah, lots of hiring. Um, So coming in after the 2016 election, I'm sure that that was something you considered before you took the job or something that was on your mind, even peripherally. Mm -hmm. How did that uh, influence your thinking about your role in the company? Yeah, it didn't really influence my thinking about getting the job almost at all before I went in. I feel like I've had a bit of a change in um, the way that I think about the world and politics over the past two years and being at Facebook and in San Francisco and in that world has definitely helped me to kind of come to new conclusions, which I'm thankful for. But that didn't really affect what I thought about it. I got my MBA previously to going to um, Facebook. So, you know, you get your MBA, you pay a lot of money, go into debt to get that. And so usually the first priority for most people is to get the best job that they can. And Facebook pays well. They have phenomenal benefits, better than probably any company in the world. You get to work with very smart people. You get one of the best names that you can have on your resume. So it's, you know, it's a very desirable company to work for, for sure. And you get to work on big problems that affect like a lot of people. So that's another drawing factor for for people to work there. Yeah. I mean, having Facebook on your resume is, is going to get noticed by people, right? Whenever you're moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, so you say that whenever you went into your job during 2018, it wasn't something that was really on your mind. Fast forward to now, clearly, as you mentioned, you've had a little um, shift in the way that you think about it. Mm-hmm. What specifically happened uh, in that two-year period? Was there a specific event that kind of shook you um, from your... Uh, desire to work at Facebook or was it more of a gradual wearing down? Yeah, I I would say it was a a bit of a gradual wearing down. Um, Yeah, it's interesting with with these big tech companies. um, They it's so I mean, it was a combination of a lot of different things. Like I think the big overarching issue for me was that it is such a big company. It 
you know, 50% of the employees are software engineers and they, they're the most important people there. They do the most work. They are, they make the company run like a machine. These are the highest end software engineers in the world. They, um, you know, bring them in from all over the world and they grind very hard all day long coding, building out new growth experiments, building, you know, the product is so big and is used by so many different people on through so many different ways and networks and and places in the world that like there needs to be a lot of people that are constantly building the code and fixing things. So it's kind of an impressive machine of, of how they do that. But I'm not a software engineer. I worked in refining processes and working and essentially telling engineers like what to do. Um, it reached a certain point where, and this is like slight hyperbole, but reached a certain point where you know, I could go an entire week and not do anything, um, literally like do next to nothing and no one would care, no one would notice and it didn't matter. And so it was like, and then, you know, the next week, because the nature of tech is that things can like move so quickly that you could do some new project the next week that takes you like two hours and land like the same amount of impact as literally doing nothing the week before. So it was just kind of like, this thing runs like a machine, it's going to keep growing. Um, the stuff that I do is basically kind of taking already formatted processes and tweaking them a little bit and reading the results from them and prioritizing things and coming up with new structures. But um, at the end of the day, I wanted to be I wanted to build something from the ground up and do something a little bit where I felt like what I was doing had like real meaning and, and real impact. Um, so that was like the overarching issue, more on like the internal kind of social issues. It, it it is just it is a weird world inside of of Facebook. Like I often felt like I was walking amongst a a sea of robots, um, for lack of a better term. And like all the people that Facebook hires, it's really fascinating. Facebook hires incredibly smart people. Like I sat between two Harvard grads who way smarter than me, daily made me feel like I had gave me imposter syndrome without them knowing it. And, but everyone that they hire is like very empathetic is very like, all I, I've worked at Amazon as well. Amazon takes all the like the actual sociopaths, but Facebook takes the super empathetic, smart, like problem solvers, and, you know, has them working on, you know, these problems that are helping the world, quote unquote. So like, Everyone there is, again, like very nice, very social, very empathetic, but a lot of it just didn't seem like very real. And everyone is just tied to these metrics that they have to like push forward for their team. And like the metrics individually aren't the thing that is like hurting people necessarily, but a lot of it is like the combination of all these different metrics, which help grow the two kind of key areas that Facebook cares about, which is growth and revenue. So adding new users and um, basically making, getting more ads and making those ads more effective. I can go into that a bit more if you'd like. But at the end of the day, I guess I left because I felt like I was not pushing myself. I was not using my talent to build something and feel like I was having a real impact on it. And, and then kind of later in my second year, just understanding that this business model, this ads business model is incentivizing content to polarize people and turn people against each other, that that type of content is very valuable. 
and you start to realize that like like it sounds conspiratorial but like people are being manipulated and 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 it's like what am i doing here why do we have all these ivy league smart empathetic great problem solvers who genuinely do have care about trying to make the world a better place why are they all essentially working to make teenage girls more anxious and keep them on their cell phones for longer and they don't think about it that way that's not like what they're thinking about but that's essentially what's happening and so my whole thing is like we need to get people out of this bubble get them out of san francisco and have them working on like things that are actually hurting people if they want to solve society's problems so i moved back to north carolina um, where i went to grad school where my, where my family lives and I'm now working for a small um, startup company that's working on um, government transparency. Um, it's called Upstate North Carolina State Government. Nice switch. Nice switch. Yeah. So um, I could have plugged it at the beginning. That would have been more egregious. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it's like we need to be taking all these smart people and having them work on things that would help people. And unbeknownst to them, they're working on things that are unfortunately leading to negative societal outcomes. Yeah, that's, I mean, when I think about this problem and I think about the people who are working at Facebook, I highly doubt any of these people are like, ooh, uh, I'm going to stow some some uh, re- revolution somewhere in the, in the world, you know? And that was another line from, uh, another line from Sophie Zhang's uh, memo was, I have blood on my hands, Mm -hmm. you know, and she's a data scientist. She didn't take that job thinking that she would end up having this guilty conscience, feeling responsible for the lives of people uh, getting worse. You know, that's, that's not, I, I, I like to think better of people than that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. Like the people there are very empathetic and a lot like because it's Facebook, they kind of hire people who are more socially oriented. So that kind of tends with the whole perception of it leaning a bit more left and liberal, which is true. So people, because if you're building a product that helps people communicate, or like, you have to hire people who understand communication, who are interested in that. So it's typically that type of person that they would hire, typically more idealistic as well. So the thought of like, oh, if we increase this metric or this engagement, they usually kind of think that like people will use it for good more, you know, more than often. And those thoughts of like, people may use this for bad. And what would that actually mean? Um, those thoughts just don't come into their head as much. Um, and especially when they're just focused on one or two small metrics that in, in themselves do not scream that this is a problem. But it's the combination of all these metrics that lead into these two areas of user growth and uh, revenue growth. And so it's really that business model that incentivizes ads to become essentially like make people more predictable. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, so the two things that Facebook cares about, you know, and you'll know this by every quarter when they come out with their numbers, all the headlines are user growth is that staying on the same trajectory and revenue growth is that on the same predicted trajectory. Thus, the analysts will, you know, assign new prices to them based on if that trajectory is changing or not. So, so if we break it down, growth means new users or churned users. So adding new users, like I said before, a lot of those are in emerging markets. Churned users are getting people to... So a user is basically someone who signs on to Facebook one time in 30 days okay. that they can count as a user. And so churned users is getting you to come back one time during a month in 30 days. 
The other side is is like the revenue side, which is all ads. So um, and that's really like the amount of ads times the ad effectiveness, like how much can they charge for the ads? So if you think about the amount of ads and the supply, that is essentially how much time are people spending on Facebook? Because they, they're only going to serve you an ad for every X amount of minutes or seconds that you're on. And they're not going to like cross that threshold. So getting people to stay on more means they can serve more ads. Mm -hmm. And then on the ad effectiveness side, it is, um, this is the more kind of insidious side, um, not intentionally necessarily, but this is basically how good can we predict um, who you are and what actions you're going to take so that the person buying the ad has a higher chance of you doing the action that they want, whether that is clicking on their article, buying their product. And really, what that really means, in my opinion, is basically, how can we make people more predictable? And when you have this technology, um, it's they can essentially put people into predictable bubbles. Like, they can look across the political spectrum and say, okay, this is like a generalized set of viewpoints that like the left or the right has or kind of a few of like the disparate middle or far left far right and kind of putting people farther into those bubbles essentially makes their ads more effective so that they so that the person that's buying them has a greater chance of the desired outcome like a click or a buy so in a way it's incentivizing people to um it's incentivizing facebook to essentially make people into bubbles and make them more similar to each other. Hmm. And that grows revenue. That grows the price that they can charge for ads. And it's not that they sat out and said, in order to have more effective ads, we need to make people into these bubbles. But like that by far is the most effective way to have more effective ads. There's no really more effective way than that. Hmm. If people start kind of dissenting from what they believe and start seeing new information and learning and growing, that means that the likelihood that the ad will turn out positive for them, um, the likelihood goes down. So um, thus they will be able to charge less for ads. So it unfortunately is leading to this world that um, incentivizes both the producers of the content of the ads and Facebook to homogenize groups of people across various spectrums, be it political, be it racial, be it um, cultural, um, other things. But as long as there's these like predictable, predictable bubbles that you can throw an ad target at and have more certainty that the ad's going to be successful, then that's how the company grows. And I just kind of like found that out over time. I was feeling that. And I think the, the, the social dilemma did a good job of kind of playing that out because they really do have these. I mean, they give the example of the people in the kind of the, the the war room, pulling levers on, let's send them this, let's send them that. And it seems conspiratorial and it seems silly. And that's not actually, and that's not, there's not people doing that. But all the algorithms that have been built are essentially doing that. Like it, it's not insane. They know, they know you far better than you know yourself. We are far more predictable than we've ever been, mm -hmm. even though we've convinced ourselves that we are far more like unique and independent thinking than we probably have been ever. It's literally the opposite of that. And um, I just think it's kind of sick that we're turning our society against each other for um, because of this ads business model, really. So. Mm -hmm. 
maybe you can help me paint uh, or fill in some blanks here in my understanding of this. Yeah. Because um, I, I was on Facebook for a while. I deactivated mine at the start of the year, I think. Um, I don't think I've ever actually clicked on an ad. Um, and it's hard for me to imagine how making people more extreme left or right is going to sell more sneakers. And what, what, what kind of ads are being serviced by this polarization? So I, I think the main, I'm not an ads expert, by the way, I don't work on ads, but right. Okay. So when it comes to the media, so, so the mainstream media um, is basically dying because people don't watch TV anymore. A lot of people are leaving to watch independent content, which is far more truthful, even though it has its own problems on things like YouTube. Um, so these big legacy media companies are basically desperate for traffic and eyeballs and attention. And so the thing that causes eyeballs and attention is raising people's emotions. That's what causes people to click. And so so it incentivizes basically raising people's emotions for them to earn money and stay relevant as a media company. So that basically means they have to make every story as radical and as crazy as as it potentially could be, it, it dials down. When the, you say they, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but when you say they, you mean media, the media companies, companies. Yes, because that assures them more of a click. And what, what, if they start ratcheting it down, then they'll lose out to the company that has the more polarizing story. So it's all just a market of this attention. And unfortunately, we're being programmed to, through all this, we're kind of being programmed to only click on like crazy stuff because that gets us that dopamine hit that makes us kind of feel very justified and like our beliefs that um, it does a lot of things that basically keep these companies like relevant and a nuanced, interesting conversation that talks about points on that you may disagree with um, that isn't really incentivized. So in terms of you're talking about like ads, so like from the media side, that's the biggest culprit of it. I think we mentioned like sneakers and shoes like that isn't as much, but some of the biggest ad buyers are just people that are putting articles and links out to content. Um, and if they come from Facebook, like Facebook makes money on that. Um, so it's, it's, that's kind of the whole political side is basically like the media. Um, so that's why we see, and, and it's also funny cause it's like one of the ways for media companies to lose engagement is for a big story to come out about how they've like flip-flopped or people have gone back on their word or they were wrong or something. And so they start putting out all this crazy stuff on both sides. The MSNBCs of the world and the Fox News of the world are essentially, they can't ever admit that anything that they said was wrong or untruthful. Mm. And so it, it's it's kind of like brain, I don't know. It's just... Yeah, that's, that's extremely unfortunate because that's it's uh, making it more difficult to do an honorable thing, yeah. which is if you print something false, you know, the expectation on the consumer side is that mm -hmm. the error is corrected. Right. And they are being incentivized by the structure of uh, the, the ads to never do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. And um, so it's basically like, like the overall framework is basically make, people, these units that click and give attention, like we are all just units of attention, basically. We have so much that we can give every day, like make these units of attention more predictable so that we know when a piece of content is served, we can best monetize it. 
and predict what they're going to do. So they can kind of actually influence the way that we act and we think over time, like they outlay in the movie. And um, that makes you a more profitable user. Mm-hmm. And that manifests in various ways through like media ads or articles for, for things like consumer products and all that. It's not like as big of a, of a deal, but it feeds into them depending on Facebook even more for their ad supply. So each year, online advertising takes a bigger chunk of other advertising outlets. So like TV used to be the big, mm. used to be the big advertising, you know, they owned everything. And pretty much all the TV could get, they would know like, who are the people in the household? You know, it's like uh, a married couple and two kids and they're about this age and they live here and here's about their income range. And then they would just serve. And here's the the state TV station that they're watching. And the station has these types of shows. So it's probably about this type of person who is watching this. Thus, we'll serve this type of ad. And it'll have this percent chance of being affected for the outcome. Um, but now with like them um, being able to serve ads on your phone and knowing exactly where you go, who all your friends are, everything you've ever inter- interacted with, everything that you've said, everything that that like excites you things that upset you in in a way it's like they can kind of push little buttons here and there to to kind of make you more predictable and a bit like a a puppet in that way i hate to sound like conspiratorial and like you're being controlled but like um it's not untrue it's not as though there is one nefarious person doing it it is a bunch of algorithms that have been programmed by people far smarter than you that are um, trying to give you a better experience and increase engagement by serving you more relevant content, AKA something that you will interact with more predictably, <laughs> yeah. um, which could be good. A lot of times it, mm-hmm. it, it, it might not be good. Right. Um, but the fact that people don't know that um, and, uh, and the fact that this isn't like a conversation people ha- are having is like very troubling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is very troubling. And I just want to go back to a point you made to kind of illustrate it in a way that uh, I just kind of thought of and maybe helps illustrate what happened from TV advertising to online advertising. And I don't know if you're familiar with photography at all, um, but it seems to me like whenever they were serving TV ads, they had like a really wide angle camera lens that they were looking at you through. Mm -hmm. And as Facebook and these social media came about, it's like they switched it to like a hundred meter lens or something where that you're much more refined focus, where they Hmm. can see the detail of you much more clearly, right? Interesting. In terms of the actual ad content on social media? Yeah. Well, I just mean like going from TV where they don't really have tons of information about you specifically. Uh, They can kind of see a wider angle view of you to something more telephoto where you are the specific focus where they can see all of your flaws. Exactly. Yeah. Much more refined view. Yeah. um, Yeah. And another thing that's interesting to me about this is the fact that media which are powered by ads through their website Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases are serving up ads that are powering Facebook. So it's like this whole ad avalanche that's going on and that we're just at the bottom of. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. Like, I don't know the actual statistics, but if you were to take the amount of ads that you see on an average day now versus 20 years ago, it would be, be pretty shocking, I'm sure. And now we just kind of learn to deal with it. It's like, yeah, all these things just, fall by the wayside and and it reaches a certain point that it like it has to be talked about um 
And like the most insidious thing is that, so I think that one of the things that opened my eyes to all of this, so I am a big Andrew Yang fan. I am a fan of the Yang gang. Yang gang. I've always thought of politics as like a joke. It's like every politician I've ever seen just gets up there and uses pure rhetoric to like lie and talk about things that they're going to do. And I always just thought it was like kind of funny because it's like, how does everyone not know that this is all ridiculous? All these people are just like, never like following through they're all hypocrites but i think a lot of my thinking on nearly everything changed almost exactly a year ago when i um came in contact with andrew yang and started watching a lot of his videos and like the bravery of this man to stand up and basically call out all these societal ills that the government is kind of sweeping under the rug and not talking about and like the audacity to actually come up with plans that would like actually work to help people and like lay those plans out. And it it was like, it was almost like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait a second. What's going on here? Why is there someone who's like being an actual problem solver? Like all the smart problem solvers go into industry. Most smart people do not go into politics because in order to be a good politician, you essentially just have to be someone who's great at lying and not like showing being ashamed of it and like having that flush on your face when you stand up and like tell people things that you know aren't true. So someone who should be like in the private sector solving problems was actually like taking that approach to the government. And I was like, wow, this is okay. Like this is someone who's actually making sense. This is fascinating. And I think one of the first things that he said that really caught my attention was that, um, like one of the, the, the places where you'll find um, screens being least engaged with and the people who are best able to kind of avoid this screen time and this trap that people are in is in Silicon Valley. And it is the people that are programming these that are the kind of healthy, well-adjusted people who know not to be using this at much. And I like I have that I that really resonated with me because I saw that Every Friday, you're sitting at your desk at Facebook and all these well-paid, smart, healthy people all are getting up and like, oh, so which hike are you going to go on this weekend? You know, what mountain are we going to? Um, Yeah, I'm taking the kids. We're going to rent a canoe and go do this. We're going to Tahoe. And it's like everyone is just planning these like screen-free, like positive, healthy weekend vacations. And they're the ones who know, know like kind of what's going on. And it's not that they're purposefully doing this and like, oh, we're tricking all these fools and no one's really thinking that. But um, they're the ones, so kind of the people who are well off in society are the ones who are most able to avoid this. And so the insidious thing, like I was saying before, is that it's typically the uh, less educated, poorer people, less resourced people who actually get caught in this trap more often who get caught in the trap of being radicalized um, like more often than people who are kind of doing well and who have more meaning in their life, who maybe have families or who have good jobs, have ways to like distract themselves positively um, that don't involve just getting all your gratification from a phone. So it's like we're, we're these, these, these two worlds are separating even further and the people that this is affecting most negatively are the people who unfortunately are least able to deal with it and have the least amount of resources to combat it. And that's kind of what got me to got me kind of like sick thinking about it. Um, and that also just 
got brought me into this whole world of understanding the impact that tech is having with in terms of all like the automation and, and all that we can get into that but mm. um that insight that he talked about was really interesting about the people in silicon valley yeah it sounds like uh the uh economic inequality in our country has been digitized yep. in a way where you have people who are uh, doing well in their lives maybe don't have feel the need to have certain holes of their their, mm -hmm. their themselves filled through these online platforms exactly. whereas other people yeah. slaving away you know 40 plus hours a week barely making bills you know they don't have the freedom to to go on these trips to mm -hmm. do these these uh outdoorsy things so instead they they live a digital life yeah it's it's so true and so then, and, and so you talk about the rise of like conspiracy theories and that is going on on both sides of the aisle. I would say traditionally it's more of a stereotype for more of like the right side of the aisle. Um, but really it's basically like an economic thing. And as economic inequality continues to increase and which it is, especially now during COVID with this like K-shaped recovery, um, the people who things are not going well for are more prone to falling into conspiracy theories because they've been lied to for most of their lives about how life was going to turn out for them. And it's incredibly sad. And they're looking for answers of why things are not going well. And a great answer for why things are not going well is that there is someone who is against you. And Fortunately or unfortunately, there's often an, uh, enough grains of truth in those assertions that they can be true enough to where people get hooked into them. Um, and so I don't really like blame them. And, and then they kind of get stigmatized for being like dumb conspiracy theory people. It's like, oh, why can't they get over it? So I, I people that hate on like this underclass of undereducated people that have no that have like less meaning in their lives and less ability to find that meaning like just calling them dumb and being and saying that like oh they're conspiracy theorists like idiots like we shouldn't recognize their humanity at all like that really enrages me and yeah like they have reason for wanting to like try and find some meaning or at least the reason why they feel a lack of meaning yeah it's it, it starts in somewhere truthful yeah you know, they, they intuit that the system doesn't give a shit about yeah. them. And so unfortunately they get gamed yeah. and they get taken down these consp conspiracy rabbit holes and get further and further away yeah. from the truth, even though they started yeah. understanding something that was real. Yeah. And it's like, if you feel like I was saying before, like on the predictability of someone's actions, that is so valuable. So Someone who unfortunately is easily manipulable, that makes them more valuable as an ad unit. So they know, like, if you, someone is into X conspiracy theory, finding some type of ad or some piece of content that they will click on next, like the percent chances they will click on that is super high. Mm. So it's actually encouraging these algorithms and systems to form more people into that bubble across the spectrum of like conspiracy X bubble because then they are more predictable. Thus, all the systems kind of align behind the scenes to nudge people in those directions. Mm -hmm. I kind of think of it as like a, a, you know, 10 by 10 square of just like bubbles. And you can, you can make the axes, you know, political, economic, whatever. But 
Um, as long as there's not as many people between these bubbles, like in the white space area, those that's kind of what they want to eliminate is like outliers and people in the white space, people who are not in a predictable bubble where there is a ad unit that is directed right at that bubble. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And I sound like a conspiracy theorist right now. And it's like it's and because it's not someone who like designed this and is like back there like this it's like this is just unfortunately what is incentivized by by the ad ad model system that we have now so like and that is the most effective ad model system for the bottom line right and so one of the things i really like that andrew Yang talked about was this whole concept of the American scorecard, because he knows and most business people know and people who have built companies know that you only um, you only get what you measure. And so if the only thing that we're measuring in society and that we care about in society and that dominates the economic conversation in society is stock price, is GDP and is um, uh, what's the other one that kind of like the basic economic numbers, then like there is no other choice for Facebook than to continue to make this model, to continue to like pursue this model because they found this is the best one. And if they find a better one, it will probably even be like worse for people. So then in my opinion, one of the only things that can help this is to start measuring new things. Like you're probably aware that the suicide rate, the incidence of childhood um, anxiety, depression, all these things are skyrocketing. And the fact that these are not like measured or things that we are like talking about in the same breath as other economic things means that companies will not start taking them seriously to try and mitigate. So we don't have any smart problem solvers working on trying to make these better. So like we need to start measuring things besides purely economic outcomes because it, it's just going to keep leading us off a cliff. It can only be the, the top of the pyramid of the hierarchy can only get steeper if that's the only thing that we're making, which means the bottom of the pyramid will only get wider, which is what unfortunately leads to more social unrest. And um, so I think that's a huge underlying cause of what we're seeing now in society. Yeah. Makes you wonder. I mean, do you think uh, that there's a way to monetize uh, growing your the concern for these sort of non-economic factors. Like, can we can we monetize a concern to lower the suicide rate of kids? Yeah, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend last night, and I met for dinner, who was in my MBA class, and he's working on a healthcare company. I wasn't even planning on talking about this, but hit, they're really going towards like outcomes-based results. So if people, um, you know, show that they've lost weight or show that they have adhered to a protocol that is healthy for them, then like that increases the amount of money that um, that is generated. So like, I'm not saying that's going to cure everything, but like you can't start to solve a problem unless you start talking about it. So like, who knows, can we like gamify and add some type of like revenue model to incentivize people to lower suicide rates or depression or anxiety rates? Um, Maybe it's not completely possible, but I I sure as heck know it's not possible at all if no one is talking about it as probably the, as one of the most major problems that we have. And that's that's the annoying thing about the conversation in the country is that like it is it's theater. It, it is designed for like engagement on news. It's designed to rise people's emotions. 
and it's not really designed to to solve problems because if we did solve problems then people would be unfortunately fortunately would be less they would be like harder to basically put in these like ad bubbles basically um yeah 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 i that's a maybe this is a good point to kind of shift to um uh, foreign interference through these social platforms. Um, sure. You know, one of the major talking points um, nationally when it comes to social media and elections is how are foreign agents like Russia, China, Iran using social media to manipulate our election? In your own perspective, how does that problem, like, is that problem bigger than the ad incentive design of these medias like which problem should we really be talking about yeah. yeah i don't know if i have a good answer on this um which one is bigger like the thing is like every country is is looking out for their own interests and every country have way has ways of using technology to manipulate elections and we do it to other countries too and yeah we're not innocent and it's like there should definitely be a lot of thinking that that problem is ever going to be solved is, is crazy because it, it probably won't. But um, it, it it is a huge problem. I don't think it's the biggest problem that we have. I think there are far greater problems that we have. But I know that like Facebook does take that stuff seriously. They do build out like they do have really they have the most advanced like ways of detecting like irregular or bad behavior and like squashing it out um, far greater than like any other company. So they do do that on a very large scale. But because there's such a huge incentive to like mess with elections and to basically turn Americans against each other from just for kind of like the stability of our country, like other countries are invested in the instability of our country, unfortunately. And so there are ways to kind of hack that and game that through these huge platforms that everyone has access to. Um, yeah. So I, what I'm kind of getting from that answer is that the foreign manipulation is probably always going to be present. We should be more concerned with ourselves. We should fix that that foundation. And then maybe that, that will have less of an impact whenever Russia tries to manipulate us or China or whatever. Yeah, yeah I think that's one. I, I think that's, a, that's like one one good answer for sure. I'm not sure how... I mean, there are people who... I mean, cybersecurity is like huge. We need to like that needs to be a huge thing. But for like, I don't know, like for people to blame the entire outcome of the last election on like Russia manipulation. And it's like, it's not it's a piece of the uh, puzzle. It, these are such like cheap answers to like real problems that are internal that need to be talked about. Like the fact that Donald Trump got elected, like he is a symptom of a much deeper issue that we have in society, as opposed to someone who like, use foreign interference to manipulate and like get into, you know, become elected. Like that is such a cheap answer that covers up real issues that need to be resolved. Now it's a chief one among that is economic inequality. Like I was talking about, I always think of it as a pyramid and as the, the only way that the pyramid can grow in the current system is that the top gets higher and steeper and the bottom gets wide, wider. It's literally the only way that it can go. And, um, if it keeps going that way, then like the percentage of people near the bottom are going to continue to get angrier and angrier and realize that they're being frozen out of all this, 
of like of benefits of feeling like they have a good life and like that that is that is the kindling to so much of the unrest that's going on that is being taken and manipulated by right. media companies to blame it on other things and a lot of the other those other things do are are real issues as well but the the kind of inequality and the lack of meaning that to people's lives that that brings is the accelerant to everything right well We've already been talking for 50 minutes here, and I do want to get some discussion in about unity and um, how unity might be mm-hmm. part of a solution um, to bring us together and overcome these divisions that uh, we've seen as a result of things like social media. And I don't want to blame it completely on social media. I mean, yeah. there's obviously divisions in our country that existed before social media, and maybe what social media has done is just amplify those divisions and make them, make them louder. Yeah. Um, but you recently came into, uh, the, the unity volunteer, uh, side of things. And, um, whenever you introduced yourself, you, you said, I just want smart people working in good faith to solve problems. Yeah. Um, so what, what did you see? How did you see that, uh, in unity? And can you just explain, uh, what drew you to, to the movement? Yeah. Um, so I've yeah I've I've been kind of observing and watching the movement for the past couple months. I'm I'm part of like the Yang Gang Twitter, and you know half of the Yang Gang now is all like likes to hate on Unity and and I don't know that it, it seems like like we need new type of thinking in the country. Like the same issues that we keep debating year after year, the same ones that were being talked about in 1980. Meanwhile, the reality of how people live their lives and we're like this technological like bomb that has hit us should signal that we should be thinking about things differently when everything else about the way we live life is like so different now. So just the fact that like, I understand the unfeasibility of it. I understand, I understand like all the objections to it. And like, I agree with a lot of it, uh, of that, but like, why are we like, we have what 45 days to the election or something like, why are we just are, are we seriously going to spend the next 45 days just trying to dig up the next Trump innuendo or the next person who has an accusation or find the next like Biden gaffe to laugh at or just like come up with some new piece of rhetoric why one side should be like every, like should vote for or against one of these candidates and it's like the thought of having to go through another 45 days of that is mind numbing and honestly insulting to people who want to actually like try and solve problems. So I just like the fact that this is something where people across the spectrum are talking and having interesting conversations, even if the idea may not a hundred percent work out, like even if like, like they, they, you know, they, they made the nominations of Tulsi and Dan Crenshaw. And like, even if like nominations never came out, shouldn't we be trying to like make people united like see each other as humans now like they're neither side even cares about that it's like there's 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 no one that even cares about like trying to make friends or understand another point of view mm-hmm. and it's, it's just like mind-boggling to me that everyone is so comfortable being on their side and in their niche and like walking like the perimeter of their own mind and like fending off any potential new information that could cause them to think that they're not smart, that they weren't right. Like we're all stuck in this, like the cult of like, I am right. And everyone would be like so ashamed to 
ever go back on anything that they said or ever admit that Mm -hmm. the ideology or the thoughts that they've had for the last 10 years, like might not be right. Cause maybe it's signal that they like wasted their time or something. And I don't know the, the fact that we're not trying to have good faith conversations with people across the aisle is infuriating to me. And so, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of the IDW people and like, I, I understand the criticisms of all that. And I like most of like, the things that they talk about, mostly because it is interesting and it's different. Like, I don't understand how someone could turn on CNN or Fox News and be like, yep, this is this is like what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the truth. Like, this is my interesting political talking points. that's making me sharper as a human. And like this, at least is an interesting like thought experiment at the very least that people should be engaging in now. So that's kind of what drew it to me. And there's a lot of smart people involved. So, yeah. And just to stress, you know, it is, it is certainly a long shot in 2020, but you know, we're not going anywhere, you know, we'll be here Mm -hmm. in 2024, um, in the years interceding. So, you know, and and to the whole like duopoly, it's like one, so no one knows what the actual answer is to like fix a lot of these problems, but it would be my bet that probably one of the better answers is to not just have two parties that are creating this national theater that's giving everyone anxiety and mental problems. Um, so that making us hate each other. Yeah. And so that would, so an obvious potential resolution to that is have like a, like an actual third party. Like many other countries have like other parties that are on national stage that get a decent part of the vote And whether it's a like centrist party or some form of populism, um, I don't know exactly what that is, but like it sure as heck is not going to happen if new ideas that come up are shouted down by people because they don't want you to ruin their little um, their thoughts on like who's going to win the election because of it. Like I'm so insulted by the people that uh, dismiss conversations like this as like negative and harmful. It's like, what else are you going to do for 45 days? Like, like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm with you 100%. One question that I wanted to ask you just with your uh, insider knowledge with Facebook is, you know, a lot of the steps that Facebook, you know, Mark Zuckerberg recently made a post on Facebook about how uh, Facebook will be treating the election as we get closer. Mm-hmm. And some of the things on there were good ideas. Um, some of them could easily be weaponized to stifle new ideas. Um, you know, one of them was they're going to limit the amount of forwarding you can do of messages, political messages in Messenger and WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on how a movement like unity, which presents a threat to the duopoly can exist whenever there is, you know, so much potential for the message to just be stifled yeah. by these tech companies. And, you know, Twitter is a great example with our, uh, account having been suspended. I believe it's still suspended. Yeah. Um, how can, how can unity thrive and, uh, spread awareness whenever it seems like the cards are stacked against us in such a way? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I don't really know the specifics of Zuckerberg's post. I I didn't read it, but it does seem that, I mean, with with the the Twitter situation, I've seen all the information on that. And I don't know what the exact answer is to trying to mitigate that and get the word out there more. They're just 
it all comes down to like people. It's like, I really like the fact that Brett uses the word like patriot and someone who like cares about like liberty. And like, those are very kind of like hokey and like overused at times, but like it is actually like now, unfortunately, it's actually like brave to kind of like challenge, especially people who may be your friends about like, so why are you? Like, like, what do you like game out? What's going to happen if Trump or if Biden is going to is elected? Um, like, it's actually like a pretty like brave stance. And like, I think a lot of it just comes down to individual conversations with people. Like the quality of conversation that you could possibly have on social media is so poor that even if the message does get out more, it's like, I don't know how effective it could be versus the quality of the message that you could have by talking about it with people in person or like a closer friend group. So I think that's really like the best way. And obviously like continue to try and and promote it on social media. To me, we we just need to start maybe pointing out that people are not like living up to their ideals of wanting to care about other people. Like we live in such different worlds that like the same, like it shows in the movie, people are not presented the same information. So like things that people take for granted as what they think are true, like that is literally not presented at all to other people. And so people don't understand these worlds that other people are living in and people don't want to understand them. Like one rule that I would love to implement for myself is like, and hopefully for other people is if you ever have a conversation with someone about politics or who believes differently than you, the the conversation should start with, okay, you are a Trump fan. Tell me three legitimate reasons why someone would want to vote for Joe Biden. That's interesting. And like, if they can't do that, then they're not even worth talking to, in my opinion. It's like, it's not going to be a productive conversation. Someone's a Biden fan. Tell me three reasons, legitimate reasons why people voted for Trump or people would want to vote for Trump, even if you don't like Trump. Can you take yourself out of your own brain and be empathetic enough to put yourself in someone's shoes that have a totally different life experience than you, have a totally different lens that they see the world through than you? And that's one of the things that really kind of angers me about, um, and I don't want to get like too political here. I'm pretty, um, I obviously am, but I, I'm pretty, <laughs> I like kind of like more moderate, but I think the people that like to... Um, push empathy and say that they and revel in how empathetic they are and caring about people are often like by far the least empathetic people when it comes to understanding why people would want to vote for and I'm kind of calling out like Democrats people on the left here like why people would want to vote for like Donald Trump and like there are plenty of bad reasons to there are plenty of reasons to not want to vote for him like I'm not going to vote for him I do not like him but I can list off five legitimate reasons that I think are not terrible reasons why people would. And, um, and like, that's kind of the ultimate form of empathy. Is it not the ultimate form of empathy to try and understand someone who, if like the only angle that you pivot your empathy on is like, whether it be like racial or cultural or class, like you should be able to pivot on like other angles and understand why people who have different like personalities or, or, or kind of are more naturally inclined to think of things in a more conservative or a more liberal way, like you should be able to empathize with that and understand that. You could still say that they're wrong, but 
you can't even have real conversations with people if they cannot acknowledge that there are legitimate reasons for having an opposing viewpoint to what you have. Yeah, I really love that. Um, and I think it, you know, going through that thought exercise uh, doesn't take very long, but it takes some honesty. Yeah. And, you know, you might humanize the other side in the, in the process. You know, you might exactly. start to realize that uh, the, the other team isn't bad. Like we've been mm. told to believe they just have different, uh, different beliefs, yeah. right? Different interests. And you know the the argument could be like, oh, you're 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 so privileged to be able to have that opinion, and it's like, ugh, I don't know. I could say it's privileged. There are arguments to be made that it's just as privileged to to think either very much in the democratic way or very much in the republican way. Like, I don't know. I like why can't we be having interesting conversations and be entertaining a thought without having to necessarily like believe in it. Um, I, people who are smart and who are curious and who are not doing that or who are refusing to do that are the ones that I think I'm the, that, that make my blood boil the most. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been great talking with you. Sure. I have one question to kind of end this on a hopefully positive note. Um, so there's, there's plenty of stuff right now to be nervous about, to be worried about, you know, we're a month and a half away from the most tumultuous yeah. election in my lifetime. I'm 30. What, what right now gives you hope? What are you excited about for the future? Is there anything that you're like, Oh, hmm. you know, this is a good thing. Yeah. Can you just elaborate on that? Yeah. So, I mean like a few things. So things like unity, things like smart people wanting to talk about solutions and wanting to engage and doing it on like a very, like unity is not getting like a lot, a ton of notoriety. And it's not like most people are just very self-interested in like wanting to do something to promote themselves or like make a quick buck or put themselves in a position to like get them further in some regard. And I don't really like see that within unity i know a lot of hate on unity is like oh they're just gonna like sell a book about this and that's why they're doing it. it's like if that's what you actually think then you're you haven't actually looked at it and so like that type of movement that is caring about wanting to understand both sides of the aisle is one point of optimism another point of optimism is that i definitely do think that we need some type of big fundamental change to our system whether probably economic, probably something to do with what Andrew Yang was talking about with UBI. And I think that the, like, the only time that change is really possible, unfortunately, is when, there, is when th times are tumultuous. And so when times are good, then we more people can just kind of sit back and watch this political theater and be entertained by it and not have to rock the boat. And there's still plenty of people who are doing well for themselves that are willing to do that, which sickens me. But I think that as, unfortunately, as tensions kind of grow and as things become a bit more like tumultuous, then these ideas just kind of seep out of like the national consciousness and they're at least coming out and some people are talking about them. And it's really a time for like, for someone to step up and like be a leader and to take these brave ideas and present them in a way that people can get excited about 
like that there's such an opportunity for that like the fact that yang could come from nothing and gain like pretty big notoriety and like the fact that that happened is a sign that something good could happen now there's a million complications because of how stagnant and um, opaque our current government system is but at least people are talking about that more than at least i've ever heard and so eventually we will come to something Mm -hmm. good and you can only focus on the positives in it now no matter how frustrating the negatives are on a daily basis i love that well said that's gonna end up being a clip (laughs) for youtube right there (laughs) well thanks again for joining me cody um I, i was looking forward to this conversation you didn't disappoint it's been it's been great chatting with you yeah thanks eric i had a great great chat as well yeah thanks for doing this this was really fun and hopefully I do not get an email from a Facebook lawyer. I don't think I said anything proprietary, did I? No, no. I mean, if you want, I can send you the, well, let me sign off here first and then we'll discuss. But yeah, so that's the end of our episode today. Um, for those listeners and viewers who are new to the idea of unity, um, we encourage you to visit articlesofunity.org where you can learn more about the movement and also become a volunteer. Um, You can also follow at Unity Podcast on Twitter to stay up on the conversations we have here regarding Unity. And for more information, um, you can refer to the links provided in the show notes for this episode. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time.